I hope you noticed in the program this morning, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating 10 years together as a church. Uh, 10-year anniversary is coming up. There's a dinner on the 6th of October. I hope every, everybody will plan to be a part of that. It's just going to be a great celebration. Uh, you don't have to be uh, one of the oldie moldies around here to, to participate uh, in that. Um, if, if you're just brand new to LifePoint, you're invited to come and, and celebrate with us. But that's just going to be a, a great time. Ten years since a small group of faithful, hardworking, sod-busting people uh, with, uh, with very little money but a great big, vis- great big vision of something that God could do here in the city of Lacey as, uh, as they made themselves available to be used to start something new. And uh, it's, it's exciting. We're starting a new series this morning, Joy in the City. Uh, 2018, we've done this uh, a series by this same title before, and this is kind of a repeat of the series, not a repeat of the content necessarily, but um, the purpose of, of this series is, is really to help us uh, think together uh, about who we are uh, in this community, who and what God has called us to be. Uh, during those early days of um, LifePoint, uh, I read something that I've never forgotten from a guy named Steve Shogren, who wrote, don't go to start a church, go to serve a city. Serve them with love. Small things done with great love will change the world. A concern for the cities in which we live is a biblical concern. Beginning in the Old Testament, continuing right on through the New Testament, cities figure prominently in the unfolding story of God's redemptive interaction with humanity. It's clear as you read the scriptures that cities are on the heart of God. Cities matter to God because they are populated with people who matter to him. Uh, as you read through the New Testament, and there, there are several letters in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul that are just, that bear the name of a city. Romans, First uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians, the city of Corinth, Greece, the city of Ephesus, the city of Colossae. Paul in his mission, adopted a city-based strategy. Why? Because taken at a wide angle, and it's true in every, in every country of the world, that as go the cities, so goes the culture at large. Uh, cities are, are centers of culture. They're centers of influence. No surprise then that as we look into God's word, uh, we come to realize that truth. The people that live in cities matter to God. And, and early in the life of our church, this conviction led us to adopt the following as the statement of one of our core values that's titled city. It's the one that got left off the list because Pastor Jim messed up. We seek to be a source of joy to our neighbors and to our community and civic leaders. We seek to contribute to the well-being of the cities in which we live. We invest time, energy, and resources 
to practically meet the needs of the last and the least among us. My prayer for this new series, my intent for this new series, is, is that it will help us to better understand the heart and mind of God for healthy cities, the particular needs and dreams of the cities in which we live, and our calling and our capacities as a church to make a difference. And my hope is that these three sessions that we're gonna, in which we're going to focus on this will cause us then to think, as I mentioned earlier, more clearly, more precisely, more practically about who and what God intends LifePoint Church to be in this city. So over these weeks, we're going to look together into God's word on this subject. We're also going to have the opportunity to meet three sets of leaders from different parts of our community and hopefully gain a greater understanding of the needs of our city uh, as seen through their eyes. So this morning, we have the privilege of welcoming uh, a new friend of mine, Brenda McCafferty, uh, who is the homelessness liaison for the North Thurston Public Schools. Uh, I met Brenda recently. We're, we're serving on a, a, a steering committee together for the city of Lacey on the problem of homelessness. And it was a delight to meet her. And then also with Brenda today is our own Deanna East, whom we all know and love, uh, who is a McKinney-Vento student navigator. She's going to explain, I hope, I hope uh, what that means. And Linda Torres, whom I've only just met this morning, uh, who's also a McKinney-Vento student navigator. So ladies, would you come? So would you just uh, briefly introduce yourselves and your role um, with the North Thurston Public School District. Sure, thank you first of all for inviting us today. We're, we're thrilled to be here. Um, my name is Brenda McCafferty. I am the McKinney-Vento Homeless Liaison for North Thurston Public Schools. So I serve families, youth and children in our district um, who are experiencing homelessness um, and make sure that we're breaking down those barriers so that they're able to access an education and be successful uh, in the schools. Um, working with the community, helping navigate them through resources in our community. Hi there, Deanna East, and I'm also part of the team um, that works with these homeless and fam uh, homeless families and students. Uh, on top of that responsibility, um, uh, Linda and I divide up the district in the high schools, and we work um, very closely with the high school students. Um, all kinds of studies have shown that if they have one supportive adult, um, that they're more likely to be successful in school. So we provide that one supportive adult that can help them navigate um, through the school system and through assistance programs um, for them a better future. Right. Hello, um, thanks for having me. I'm Linda Torres. I, like Deanna said, I'm a student navigator and I work really closely with those uh, Senior, like the high schools, we do focus a lot on the seniors because we want to make sure that they do make it to graduation um, because being homeless can definitely affect uh, how well you success in school and how that affects you even further on in the future. Um, and yeah, well, what else is there? <laughs> so let's go to the next question, which is why do you do what you do. Um, this is not, this can't be an easy role. Um, why are the needs of homeless students important to you personally? 
Well, first of all, I just want to kind of share something. Um, most of us, when we hear the word homeless, the first thought that probably goes through our mind is a person standing on a street corner holding a cardboard sign. Or maybe we, we see a lot of stuff on the news with um, families, or excuse me, uh, these tent cities and so forth. Um, a lot of people may say that homelessness is a little um, concern. It is a little concern. Little, like little people this big. Um, so for me, these kids are important, these families are important, it's the right thing to do. To me, I want to see success for these kids, um, supporting them, making sure that they're able to get that education. Education is a pathway out of homelessness, and um, it's important. These are resilient, amazing kids, and um, we want to make sure that we can do whatever we can to, to support these kids so that, again, they can get an education and, and beyond high school educations or have a plan beyond high school. Um, it's important. It's important to me uh, personally, but also on an education level as well. So um, I grew up in Shoreline, and I don't know if you guys know where that is. It says north of Seattle. And uh, so um, Shoreline has some of the most expensive homes. <laughs> Uh, along the waterfront area. And my, my family was, um, I found out later, was middle income. But I thought we were poor because up against these uh, kids in my, my classes, um, we didn't have anywhere near as much as what they had. Um, but as I, I grew older, we always had enough food in my home, always. And as I started bringing home classmates, I realized that some of them did not. And my house was the house that everyone flocked to that was my house. And um, so I started to realize that a lot of my classmates and friends did not have a house full of, of love and support that I did have. And that really moved me and I think shaped most of the rest of my life to realize that I, I can now make that difference to somebody else. Um, and that's what this work does for me, that sometimes it's hard to see these kids, little kids, living in a car. Um, but I know that I could make a difference to hopefully steer that future a little differently. Um, why it's important to me is because I actually was a homeless youth. I, um, as a teenager, I was kicked out and I was left to figure it out on my own. Um, I was fortunate enough to have already started college, which was not supported by my family, surprisingly enough. Um, I did it on my own, and it was kind of the reason I was kicked out, but I had to figure it out. I had very few people in my school setting that really supported me. I stayed in hostels, I stayed on benches, I stayed in the lobbies of my school, and I would stay in strangers' dorm rooms. And I had a, just a, a few actual adult stable figures that really fought for me in my education and my being safe and just being able to stay in, stay in school. So when, as I, saw what they've done for me, I always wanted to give back. I always wanted to be able to be that kind of mentor and support to others because I don't know if I would have made it without them. And although I am 
so much closer to my family now and we have a really good relationship now without those individuals in that time of my life i could have i could have i could have died mm-hmm. um so that's why i love what i do i love being able to connect with these individuals if they're willing to connect with me nothing is ever forced obviously but if i can connect with one i feel like i've I've helped at least one feel like they can they're worth it. They they can continue on and they have something to offer. And that's why I do what I do. It's awesome. Well, thank you for what you do each of you and the reasons you do it. So, LifePoint has been invested in the backpacks program for what? About 8 years, Diana. It's been about 8 years and uh I remember it's sitting. That, Has you, it been a little longer? You came pretty. You came to me pretty soon after you guys started here. We started working on this. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we we kept asking, "How can we serve?" And finally, Dave Lennis said, "Go see Diana." <laughs> yes, he brought you right into me. And and what I rem- one of the things I remember about that conversation, Diana, that that first conversation, is that you weren't too sure about me, and and uh, I was trying to figure it out. And um, but I remember making a promise to you, which was. We're a, we're a small church, we're just getting started, but what I can promise to you is it will be faithful and dependable. And, and it's been a great relationship over these years, and it's just continued to grow. Um, through my exposure with the steering committee that Brenda and I are serving on, uh, I've sensed, just from a few things that have been shared, that the landscape has changed a little bit over these eight years. Uh, maybe the population of homeless students has grown, at least the ones we're aware of. Um, so give us a little status report on, on just, just an overview of, of homelessness and, and kids that are served by your programs within the district. So um, those numbers, the number of homeless children and, and youth in our district that are being identified has increased every year. Um, a couple years ago, our numbers were, we had um, up to 928 kids who were identified as McKinney-Vento or homeless. Those are kids who are um, doubled up due to a loss of housing or an economic hardship. So many families in our district right now are finding it very difficult to find affordable housing. Um, and what's happening is they are trying to many of these families are working. Um, it used to be the working poor, now it's the working homeless. Um, these families have a job, so most of the time they're single parent families, but in order to rent a place you have to make three times the rent to be able to get into a place. These families are not making that kind of money. So they're finding themselves doubling up. We also have many families in our district who are living in shelters, um, hotels and motels. They're living in their cars, campgrounds, RVs. Um, We also have families living in what we call substandard or inadequate housing. So those are families who Maybe they don't. They got their water or their power shut off. They have no heat. Um, I've been into a home where it was a mobile home, looked great on the outside. I got inside. It was completely gutted. Literally, I saw two by fours with the metal siding from the outside in that house. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are families. Again, these all qualify under that homeless, and those numbers are increasing every year. Last year we did go down a bit, um, and I want to say that I think that is directly related to the fact that we have Diana and Linda here. A um, couple of reasons, I think. Number one, we're able to do a better job of identifying families. Um, I was alone a, a two and a half years ago 
trying to do this and identifying these kids. Um, it was a little more difficult trying to get a hold of them, as you can imagine. A lot of times their cell phones are shut off, so trying to call them back to see what kind of services we can help provide to them was difficult. So I would, I, there were kids that did maybe slip through um, as far as coding them that may not have um, actually qualified. Um, but again, we now have three of us making these phone calls, working with these families, doing intakes, mm -hmm. making sure that we're providing them with the support, supports that they need. So last year we ended the year with 886 students who were qualified as McKinney-Vento. Um, a child qualifies for services from the start of the year till the end of the year. At the beginning of the new school year, we have to re-identify every one of those kids by going out and talking to families, making phone calls, visiting schools. Um, we are already up to nearly 300 kids just in this first um, couple weeks of, of school. We start in October, or excuse me, August. Um, trying to identify them to make sure that we have buses set up for them because these kids are all over the place. They Again, we have kids in cars, tents, um, you name it. They're, they're in every situation. Um, so I see that that number, again, is every year it is increasing and it, it's a big concern. And, and the majority of it is due to the lack of affordable housing. I also see that our numbers went down just very slightly if you're hearing those numbers, but because they also call and we're able to get them access to services before they lose housing. Knowing how hard it is for them to gain housing, if we can catch them before they lose housing, um, we are a uh, hundred times uh, uh, more likely to keep them there. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So what's your dream? for the future in terms of uh, serving the needs of these students. I remember I asked Deanna that one day and she said, oh Jim, I wish we could encourage some kids to go on to college or vocational training and out of that came our Boost Scholarship Fund, which was cool. But but what are what, what's the next step? What's your dream for, for what you do in, in advancing the effectiveness of what you do? Well, I'd like to continue to build that resilience with these kids. Um, again, they, these are kids that have so much potential. Um, so working with them, starting, we, we start identifying kids um, basically from birth to 12th grade. Um, so working with them in these younger years, making sure that they have the supports, educating the families, um, working with our community, building relationships and partnerships with the with our community to help support these families, um, helping the families navigate, um, and our students. And I'm going to actually let Deanna and, and Linda kind of talk about because our they are very um, important to these high school kids with the program, the McKinney as the McKinney Vento navigators. They're doing amazing things with these kids. So I'm going to kind of let Deanna talk a, a little bit about that. So um, you know me, I'm I'm always off to the next. Um, big thing and uh, so if I could just magically wave my wand um, it would be a resource center it would be a resource center that these these families could come to um, that would have a wide variety of, of volunteers and resources available I think that that supportive adult is not only needed for kids I think that supportive adult um, is needed for all these families they um, very often have no idea how to do something or how to get out of the situation they're in. And we listen to this story over and over again that they're just not able to get out. They, they're just constantly sliding back down a little further and a little further. Mm -hmm. So if that was something I could just magically make, it would be a, a resource center that um, 
uh, all kinds of different community organizations would be right there to help provide those supports. My dream would be to have a big house or a big building filled with lots of small apartments, rooms, whatever, and let all of the unaccompanied homeless teens that have no place to go have a place to go and sleep without barriers, without red tape, without massive hoops to jump through. Because one of the major issues I find is having to jump through that red tape just to let, find a place for these kids to sleep. I worked with an individual last year who was unsheltered for half of the school year, sleeping in parking lots because he didn't have any place to go. No one could take him in. He couldn't stay anywhere. He didn't have many friends. The only person he was related to wanted nothing to do with him. Like, how are you going to get an education and be successful in school if you can't even sleep at night? So he would come to school every day, every day after trying to sleep outside. And then he was <laughs> falling asleep in class. And so he was frustrating his teachers and frustrating the school staff. It, it can be frustrating, but when you have students who are falling asleep in class, it's mostly because of other bigger issues. So if he had someplace safe to be, he could have been successful in school, but he didn't. School was his only safe place. So it was hard trying to work with him when he was exhausted. So I would just wish I had a big place so they could just come and sleep and no questions asked. That's my wish. <laughs> That's a great wish. It's a great dream. So the purpose of this series, is, of course, is to help our congregation think practically, dream a little bit about how we can make a difference. So how could you see a church like ours uh, continuing to make a uh, an increasingly meaningful contribution to solving some of these problems. Well, if you can figure out Lin, or, yeah, Linda's, <laughs> Linda's wish, that would be great. Yeah, we'd, um, like a, we'd like our own building, too. That's right. <laughs> um, so first of all, I'd like to just say, um, kind of on top of what Deanna said, we are actually working on a resource center right now with the district. So we're super excited um, to be uh, in the process of building that resource center. Um, and I know that LifePoint has um, done amazing things right now. In fact, um, Deanna has been a great resource for me coming into our team. Um, I knew that LifePoint had done the backpack program and, and provided food for many of our kids, um, but she's actually kind of pulled some of that into our, our office. We now have a small food bank um, to be able to, when a, when a mom comes in and she's um, sitting at my table crying, um, she has nowhere to go, she has nothing to feed her children tonight. Before that, that mom leaves, we've got a bag of food ready for her, we've got hygiene supplies ready for her, um, we let her go through, our, we've got a small clothing bank. Um, through that resource center, we're hoping to build on all that. So it would be nice to have um, a, a, an actual food bank for families to, to get. Um, also, the. Undie Sunday and um, you know all, all those are all 
really important things to be able to, I mean, it sounds kind of weird to be able to give a family or a child a pair of socks or a package of socks, but that package of socks surely means something to those kids. They're going to school in the wet, gross Washington weather um, with holes in their shoes and no socks on their feet. So to be able to give them something personal like that or a package of underwear um, with a bag of food, that is so important. So we truly appreciate all that you guys have done so far. Um, and, and we hope that we can continue and build on those particular um, areas. Um, also, I just, you know, putting, a, putting it out there, um, as Deanna said, our numbers may have gone down because we have been able to meet and talk with many of these families before they have lost housing. Um, they are shy $200 in their rent and many landlords will not accept that rent unless they have the full amount. Um, so it's hard to hold, you know, $800 in your hand because you need a thousand, the landlord won't take it. Two weeks later, you're, you've already tapped into that just because you need to be able to provide for your kids. So it would be nice to be able to um, work with families on assisting them with like rental or or utility types assistance cool so lifepoint has already been part of this process just so you know lifepoint has been supporting more than timberline for a few years and we, i know we've had this conversation before but the the food that you raise actually goes into all four high schools all four high schools you, you raise so much um that we've been supplying food for all those closets but for timberline students I know that they have a safety net that they don't know of. And so I can call your church and say, hey, I've got this family, and because of this, they're going to lose housing if they don't have the, that $200. And I'm able to call and, and um, get that resource only for our, our Timberland students now, but maybe that conversation should be more of, uh, of a district conversation um, because you guys have been definitely moving those borders out. Anything to add? Linda? No, I, I think they covered it. <laughs> I, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate all the support, and so do the families and the kids that we work with. Cool. Any final comments any of you want to make before we wrap this up? I, I do want to say something, um, just because I've worked with you guys from, from the beginning, um, and, and I apologize for that. <laughs> first conversation because <laughs> I did I was I was a little skeptical of this this man walking in because I had I had worked with so many groups and churches that they were great for a big project and then they disappeared and so I um, was probably a little frustrated that day <laughs> I probably was not as much as gracious as I should have been but you guys have been amazing um, I have never felt so supported by an organization that I knew 100%. It went from um, me directing all the things that we were doing to um, uh, now you guys call me and say, hey, by the way, the, the date of that fundraiser is, is October. <laughs> and that, that's a pretty amazing feeling to know that it, it, it will go on whether I'm here or not. And that's, I think, the greatest gift that you can, can give somebody that that um, is working with these communities to know that no matter what, that, that is going to continue on. And so thank you. Cool. Can I pray for you? All right. Father, I thank you so much for these ladies. I thank you for uh, the hearts with which they do the work that they do, the compassion that they have for students. And uh, Lord, we ask your blessing on their work. And Lord, that they would sense you at work in them and through them. Uh, in the district 
and in their relationships, in their conversations. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would give to LifePoint uh, an increasing vision, uh, an increasing generosity, an increasing compassion uh, that would move us into new uh, chapters of our investment in the students of North Thurston Public Schools. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can go back to your seats. Well, very quickly, would you uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, and, uh, and then having done that, would you stand with me and let's read the scripture together. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You may be seated. I want to just uh, turn our attentions for just a few minutes to this passage, and let's take a brief moment to understand the historical moment in which these events are occurring. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8 and 12. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. Uh, the apostles have received their commission. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church in Jerusalem on the day of the Feast of Pentecost. The church is being established. They're experiencing exponential growth. A period of relative calm is experienced. This is where we read um, Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47, that passage that says, you know, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. We say, oh, what a great picture of the church. Um, but it isn't very long before active persecution breaks out against the church on the heels of the execution of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, who's stoned to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin because of his witness to the resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ. And notice in verses 1 and 4 of Acts 8 that this first wave of active persecution resulted in the fledgling church at Jerusalem being scattered or dispersed. And just before he, is, he had ascended into heaven, Jesus had said to uh, his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the words of Jimmy Buffett, they were about to experience changes in attitude and changes in latitude. The, the commission that Jesus gave to the apostles was really quite clear, at least from our perspective in the 20th century, uh, 2020 hindsight. There's ample evidence, though, that the apostles may not have heard it quite as clearly. 
what Jesus told them would be their future was so new to their self-perception, so um, foreign to anything they had ever anticipated that it was hard to take in. In fact, I suspect that when Jesus spoke those words, most of them had never imagined traveling far at all. But it was, in fact, then persecution that became the vehicle for propelling this fledgling church beyond its geographical, culture, cultural, and religious comfort zone. Verse 4 tells us that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So this dispersion and this scattering that was prompted by persecution rendered many of these first-generation Jewish Christians homeless. They were compelled to leave the cities in which they had been raised, the friends and neighbors they had known their entire lives, uh, the homes in which they lived, the jobs by which they earned their livelihood, everything that had been familiar. And I imagine uh, that most of us 21st century American Christians in similar circumstances wouldn't do what verse 4 says they did. We, we wouldn't preach the word wherever we went. Uh, we would see it as the ultimate excuse from doing what they did. Uh, nevertheless, in their condition of being disrupted and discomforted and uh, displaced and disoriented, they preached the word wherever they went. My friend Stuart Briscoe often says that happiness depends on happenings. So if our happiness happens, our happenings happen not to happen in the manner in which we happen to hope for our happenings to happen, well then, we will most often happen to be unhappy. Uh, you don't get the sense that these intrepid believers happened to let their happenings happen to leave them unhappy. And instead, they saw it as a golden opportunity for the highest priority in their life, which was the advancement of the gospel. They preached the gospel wherever they went. And that just provides us with a timeless principle that applies to all of us. Whatever happens, whatever happens, preach the word. And exhibit A among those scattered Christ followers was this man, Philip. This is not the apostle Philip. This is the, the colleague of Stephen, the deacon, uh, Philip, who went down to a city in Samaria and there proclaimed the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Uh, it stated very matter-of-factly that he went down to this city in Samaria. It doesn't really register with most of us what that meant. Uh, and by the way, it's Samaria, not some area. Uh, Samaria is a, a region in northern Israel. It, it's still called Samaria today. And there was between the Judean Jews and the Samaritans a long history of tension in animosity. Without going into all the history, simply understand that there were issues that separated them that had been compounded over many, many generations, hundreds of years, racial discrimination, as well as religious and political animosity. And for a, for a modern parallel, uh, think of current relationships between Israelis and Palestinians. A very similar kind of tension in terms of a, a cross-cultural setting. This, for Philip, would have been radically cross-cultural. And if you pause long enough to read the broader description of what was going on in that city, in Samaria, and you allow it just to sink in, you'll begin to realize that some really bad stuff was happening there. Among them, demonic oppression, dark magic, spiritual deception, deep despair. And they were daily realities for this 
the residents of this city. Philip, a native of Jerusalem, a Jewish believer in Jesus, went down to that city in Samaria, and there he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, and proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. And as he did that, notice what he did. He cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He healed the lame and the paralyzed. And as I read this, I'm impressed with the simplicity of, of what Philip did, as the simplicity of his ministry. He, he really did two things only. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. So, so there's that proclamation. But Philip also met deep, practical human needs of the residents of that city by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what was the result? The text tells us that there was great joy in that city. Great joy in that city. Why? Because the demon-possessed were delivered. The lame and the paralyzed were healed. The Samaritans believed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And those who believed were baptized, it says, both men and women. A lot of Christians will say, well, the really important thing is, is simply that we preach the gospel. I don't think the New Testament bears that out. What Philip did was he won a hearing for the gospel by being a servant of the practical human needs of the people. You get the sense from this account that what, what captured their ears was that he first met their daily needs. The title of this series, A Joy in the City, is a description of what results when the people of God are faithful to proclaim the gospel, which is the good news of the kingdom of God, which has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, and to meet the deep needs of others created in the image of God. See, in a perfect world, uh, cities would be places of human thriving and flourishing. Instead, in our cities, joy is distorted, it's disrupted, it's undermined and stolen in a thousand different ways. Joy isn't synonymous with happiness. Happiness depends on what happens to happen. Joy, by contrast, is rooted in hope. And hope is the settled confidence that what is happening now, our present circumstance, is not the end of the story. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that, 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 that Jesus came to transform our lives. He came to transform our communities. He came to transform our eternal destiny. So being the church, the body of Christ in the world, in the cities in which we live, means fundamentally that Jesus Christ intends to be incarnated in us, to live in us, to be formed in us, to reveal himself through us, to love through us, even and especially among people who did not, who do not yet believe in him. 
who do not choose to follow him. Someone once said that the church is the visible and visceral expression of Jesus living among the people. The visible and visceral expression of Jesus living among the people. The community of Christ followers uh, in the city is called to be both proclaimers and practitioners of good news. We're to proclaim good news. We're to be good news. We're to practice good news. We, we will be concerned for the material and physical well-being of the residents of our city as well as their spiritual well-being. Good news and good, neat, good deeds. Good news and good deeds cannot and must not ever be separated. The other night, my family and I watched a documentary about the amazing life of the late, great Fred Rogers. And I made particular note of one of the things that Fred Rogers said. He said, wherever bad things are happening, if you look closely enough, you'll find good people trying to make a difference. As I thought about that, I thought, that's, that's really true. If you've noticed over the last several years when when disasters like Hugo and Katrina and now Florence happened. Um, There's a preponderance of Christians who took time out of their lives, who inconvenienced themselves to serve their neighbors. If you look closely enough in a bad situation, you'll find good people trying to make a difference. So that description, thank you Mr. Rogers once again, that description ought to fit the church in every city, including ours. The Apostle Peter wrote, your conduct, your conduct among the surrounding peoples in your different countries should always be good and right. So that although they may in the usual way slander you as evildoers, yet when disasters come, They may glorify God when they see how well you conduct yourselves. See, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. And we are never more like Christ than when we are serving sacrificially to meet the desperate, spiritual, physical, material needs of real people. So may you and I proclaim good news, may we practice good news, and may we bring joy to the cities in which we live in the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, come now to your table, uh, we're reminded that you came to serve, not to be served. You came and you laid down your life in a thousand different ways, but ultimately at the cross to reconcile a lost and desperate and rebellious humanity to yourself. And Lord, may we be ministers of that reconciliation. May we be ministers of joy as we serve our community well. In your name, we pray. Amen.